welcome to the Autism Grown-Up Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tara Regan, and I'm the coach and educator as well as founder here with Autism Grown-Up, a website for autistic individuals, families, and professionals to connect and get resources, ideas, information, and inspiration when it comes to autism and growing up. And this podcast is an extension of that. On this show, we share stories and strategies when it comes to autism, growing up, and adulthood. So let's jump right in. On today's episode, I have a dear friend of mine on the podcast, and I hope she also becomes the best friend of the podcast. I'd be totally happy to have her back. Elizabeth Rubin is a North Carolina-based occupational therapist, or OT. She currently works in early intervention with little ones referred to her through the organization she works in. She began her autism training at Camp Royal, a summer and year-round camp for individuals on the autism spectrum here in North Carolina, and it's also a place neither of us can get enough of. Uh, She also worked at the Teach Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and then pursued her master's in OT at Colorado State. So in this episode, we talk about her day-to-day professional life as an OT, working with kids in the home setting and with their families, as well as we take a deep dive into some of the major skills or domains she commonly works on with families particularly self-regulation and coping skills and how they are still ones to really focus on across the lifespan and can actually ultimately prevent so many now adults accessing the supports, employment, and community they so desperately need. So these are just a few things I learned because I learned so much in this conversation with Elizabeth about her work and I am so excited to hear what you all think. I'm so excited to have you on this episode, Elizabeth. Welcome to Yay! The show. This is my first ever podcast that I've yeah. ever done, so this is really weird, but it's fun. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks, Tara. As a professional and as my friend for a very yeah. long time. High five. <laughs> I hope that caught that, too. Yeah. But we've known each other since our days back in Camp Royal, as you heard in my intro about Elizabeth and... 2010! I know, and you started in 2009 Yep, Monica, who I hope to get on here too. That was 10 years ago, which means I'm really old now. (laughs) Oh dear. That's, it means you're so wise. That's what it means. Sure, yeah. In this field of autism. (laughs) Getting wiser, yeah. yeah. But yeah, 10 years of experience in the field of autism. Wow, Isn't that's a long time. Yeah. It's like a classic. Mm-hmm. We are old. <laughs> we are old. But um, yeah, I'm so excited to have you on as one of my first guests, too, because I know so many professionals in the field don't get to come on and share their experiences through podcasts. Podcasts are actually pretty old now too, like us, but like it's still trying to, they're still like, When was the first podcast? I don't even know. I don't even know. I feel like I was listening to them in college in like 2011 Okay, and they were starting to get a little bit bigger. A little bit bigger than. Yeah. Wow. So podcasts have been around a long time too. Yeah. <laughs> Since we were at camp. <laughs> but yeah, to like be able to share more information like this and be able to spread this to more families across the country and even the world. We have some listeners like from all over. Really? Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Super cool. Australia and India. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Checking in and they're going to learn from you today. All right. Well, (laughs) hello, people of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about your role as a professional in the autism field, I know you do a little bit more than in autism serve more families, but just kind of like a brief role. So I work in early intervention right now. Um, so each state in the U.S. kind of does their early intervention program differently, but in North Carolina, um, each county has their own CDSA. That's a Child Developmental Services Agency. And um, if a child is showing signs of developmental delays, anyone, a teacher, parent, um, 
pediatrician can refer them to the CDSA um, and then they'll get services. So OT is usually one of them that is brought in. Speech and PT are the other big ones. So I usually enter into kind of a family's life before their child gets a diagnosis of autism. Sometimes um, it's shortly after, but usually it's when they're um, 18 months to um, you know two and a half years old. Um, the CDSA serves kids from zero to three. So um, I kind of enter into their life and I'm sometimes one of the first people to even bring up the fact that maybe have you thought about an autism diagnosis for their child? And that kind of plays out differently with different families. Some families already know that their child might have autism and are willing to talk about it. And some families really don't know much about autism at all. And they um, are either don't want their child to get diagnosed. They're not sure if their child really has autism and they're, you know, they're scared and they're worried and it's a, um, can be a really stressful time for a lot of parents. But I, um, I see kids usually anywhere from one to two times a week, sometimes a little less than that, um, for our sessions. And so I'll really go in there and work, um, on kind of just their daily life skills. So we work on self-regulation if they're having tantrums, transitions, um, self-help skills like eating and dressing and bathing, um, sleep, um, play, and also fine motor and just kind of general sensory processing skills. Um, did that answer the question? Oh, definitely. Okay. I think that's the end of the episode. You <laughs> question. Sorry if I went too far. <laughs> I, I just know, like, I this is it. everything that I do. That's so great. Thank you for giving us like a really good sneak peek or a preview of like what you do and like the skills you work on with different families. Um, and uh, how they commonly are focused on like co- the common milestones of that age range, but mm-hmm. also support them as they are growing up, as they navigate and build more skills and get older. And because you serve kids until age, well, three, but then yeah. so technically three, the CDSA stops. But I I also have worked with some families until I think my oldest kiddo is six on my caseload right now. Okay. So um. Uh, like my agency, we're a small private agency, so I have the ability, if insurance works out after they turn three, um, to continue seeing them. So I have do have a couple of kids on my caseload that I started when they were two, mm-hmm. and now I see them when they're you know four, five, six years old. So I've kind of helped walk families through that transition from an IFS, um, an IFSP, which is the Individualized Family Service Plan, to the IEP. So when okay. a kid turns three and they start going to, they get preschool services, then it will, you know, transition over to the IEP, which, um, you know, might follow them throughout their whole educational um, career. So I kind of, that's the transition that I help a lot of families bridge. Um, and I've become kind of familiar with the, the process of how that works. So, yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah. That's, um... Yeah, when, it's funny because when I do talk about transition, if I don't say transition to adulthood, a lot of families just like are like, well, are you talking about that transition from the IFSP to the IEP? Because that's a huge it's one. It's a big one because the IEP is very different and all of a sudden it becomes education-based and the IFSP is just barely, very family-centered and family-driven. The family state the goals and it usually just relates to the child's daily routines and then the okay. IEP... Um, it's very different and there's yes. a lot more team members involved and it's um you know educational goals which is it's really different and that transition for the kids and families from being at home some of them don't even go to daycare or any have never been to any kind of preschool before to jump to a preschool with an IEP and um it's a it's a big transition yeah for a lot of families yeah it's huge so yeah, that IEP team gets humongous at times because they have to have the, all those requ- required roles. Yeah. So who is typically at the IFSP meeting? Typically it's um, the family and okay. then the service coordinator. So each family gets assigned a service coordinator that helps, well, coordinate all their services. Um, mm-hmm. And they're the family's main contact person if the family isn't happy with a therapist or wants to reach out to get an autism um, diagnosis or any if anything comes up, that's kind of the family liaison between the family and all the services. And then um, typically any other service providers that are able to make the meeting. So um, if we're not able to be there as the family service providers, we'll always um, provide input to the service coordinator via email or or phone call. Um, So I do attend some IFSP meetings if it works out with my schedule, but because you know, it's hard to coordinate the family schedule, the service coordinator, and all the other therapists. So it, um, 
yeah. So I'm I maybe attend maybe like thirty percent of IFSP meetings. Um, it just really depends on um, my schedule and if I'm able to to make it. Um, and they usually happen in the family's home is the most common place. Sometimes families go to the CDSA, but more often than not, um, the professionals all come into the family's home and everyone sits down and and talks about the child and their progress. Okay. Wow. Yeah, that sounds very family-centered then to be at the home and yeah are they kind of like the the main decision makers then when it comes to the IFSP like with goals yeah so the way it works is that the um the service coordinators generally start out by just asking the family what are your main goals for your child what are your priorities and then Um, some families are able to list a bunch and some families, you know, might say something just like, I want them to talk more. And then it's kind of up to the service coordinators and the other professionals to jump in and help guide the family to like, okay, we want them to talk more, but also doesn't little Johnny or whoever have trouble with transitions or doesn't he also, you know, he's not feeding himself with a spoon yet. Right. And then the family will say, yeah, that's something I want to work on. Or sometimes, you know, we as professionals might have a concern that the family's not really worried about. And generally, if the family's not worried about it, it doesn't get on the IFSP. So if the okay. family's like, oh yeah, he, you know, he doesn't feed himself yet, but that's not one of my goals. I don't really want to work on that because I'm more worried about other things. Right. Then it doesn't usually get on the IFSP. Okay. So it's family driven with input from the other professionals. Kind of guiding along the process. Yeah. So for the domains you mentioned, are there like common ones that have to be on an IFSP? Um, so you have to, to add a new service, um, you have to have at least one goal that's related to that service. Uh, okay. So, you know, if it's PT, it might be walking or crawling or, you know, going up and down steps or whatever the case may be. If it's speech, it's almost always talking, requesting needs and wants. Um, Speech also works on a lot of cognitive stuff, so like following directions, following, you know, multi-step directions. And there's um, there's overlap between the disciplines, so like yeah. OT kind of works on some stuff that PT does and also some stuff that speech does. Um, and then for OT, it can really be a lot of different things, anything from, you know, getting their child to eat a greater variety of foods to like, um, you know, playing with toys appropriately to reducing the number of meltdowns. Um, can be a lot of different things, but there's... Um, there's several different domains. I'm trying to think if I can remember all of them. So when they do the um, when they do the IFSP, they make a list of all these developmental areas. I think it's social, cognitive, um, physical milestones, including gross and fine motor, um, like adaptive skills, emotional regulation. I think there's like six different areas. And then there'll be a list of things my child does well and things my child needs to work on. And so you kind of use that with the family to say, all right, this is what they're doing really well. And then these are some areas that we could continue to grow. So it's kind of broken down into those areas and the goals usually fall into any one of those domains. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. I like kind of like the breakdown of that and that probably helps families figure out where they would like to go next and yeah. celebrate like yeah. what their kid is doing what their kid is doing yeah. and like how has achieved at by the time that meeting yeah. has occurred yeah that's so cool I wish we incorporated more of those in an IEP like there's definitely some adjustments there like there's always a heavy focus on academics which makes sense it's yeah. an educational programming plan but um as a student gets older by their time of their transition plan they have to focus on an employment-based one or some skill areas that could be like broadly focused on employment right but academic ones could eventually like they could be defined as something working towards employment because to get a job you need to finish high school yeah but um i think even just the need across the spectrum itself is to be focusing on more like vocational skills and independent living and I think the other one is educational based so that of course is covered by the IEP but there's such a need to focus on like adaptive skills coping skills yeah and because those are sometimes the things that a lot of the kids on the spectrum struggle the most with and they yes. might you know academically be working on certain things or but socially emotionally adaptive skills really be kind of lagging behind or, or need more assistance and yes. and those things are so important yeah to get a job or just to, to be in the community and, and yeah. all those things that we want for them to be able to do when they get older and it's I think when the IEP happens it's almost like a lot of that stuff just kind of 
falls by the wayside. And yes. and yeah, I definitely think the IEP process could maybe borrow from some of what the IFSP does. Um, I agree. It's yeah, an interesting totally. switch to all of a sudden, you know, the the family from the family and all their routines being the focus to like just the school stuff. And obviously, yeah. an ideal IEP is going to include everything that affects a child's academic performance. But right. I've had a lot of families say, you know. <laughs> it doesn't all that doesn't all it's not always the reality so yeah have you like witnessed any of those like adjustments as yeah as... not um I haven't sat in on I've only sat in on one kiddo's um IEP yeah. meeting but I've just from what families have said you know the school is not going to work on this because you know they say that his his speech is, is good enough for communication or you know that's not really impacting his his educational goals so we're not going to add that as a goal even if yeah. You know, the family and I see it as an area that, you know, actually is impacting the child at school. And so I've, I've definitely had families be um, not happy with their child's what's happening at the school and not happy with the IEP process. And not all the time, but um, often families will just kind of relate to me um, things that are going on where I'm like, what? They need to be working on this. And oh, the school's not addressing it because they right. say, you know, oh, it's not affecting their education or whatever. So. Right, and like their educational functioning level, yeah. it doesn't impact their academics, and it's not that major of an issue to right. be focusing on. And I feel like there is some of a shift in schools, but it's still a huge adjustment for families to be thinking about what's helpful and being, they're still like equal members of the IEP team, but it's just, it's different, of course, just by the name of the IEP. Yeah. It's, it's just yeah. very student-focused, and um, families are still making the decisions, but not all the time. Yeah, not maybe as much as should be happening. Yes, yeah, yeah. and there's still, like, a lot of jargon being thrown around, and they don't understand the benchmarks. Like, I remember going to IEP meetings with my family and other families over the past few years of being on the research projects that I've been on and they don't understand like the why are we doing this why is my the goal for my child to be doing this 80 percent of the time two out of five days like right. why does it quite make sense so yeah. I think there's still like a lot of discussion and communication that could be happening around an IEP meeting to be more supportive of families yeah for sure and especially as they shift out of school yeah yeah like I I've heard even some people suggest that we shift back to like a family support type of plan once their child or now adult child is in the adult services system because they're a part of the support network and really involved that way again. Yeah, that that makes sense because yeah, once a child leaves school, then it's back to kind of where you were when they were little, and yeah. the parents are responsible, families responsible for figuring out what to do with their child. There's not a school to send them to every day, um, and then there's a lot that's you know there's a lot that goes on in the family system and the family dynamics and the um, that is going to impact their day to day life. So that's. That's an interesting idea. I like that idea. <laughs> it's interesting to see how that plays out. Like, yeah. I've heard a lot of discussion about, like, we should be looking at, you do Part C services, or is it Part B for IDEA? Um, for early intervention stuff. Oh, gosh. I'm not, this is something I learned in school. Oh, too. Yeah, it I'm might be Part B. Yeah, because it's, um, yeah, I think it's, is Part C the school one or yes, the other one? So it's probably Part so. B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't even remember. <laughs> I should know this, but you I would have to. Go, work. I would have to go back and look in my pediatric textbook and be like, "Oh yeah, it falls under this." This was a question on my board exam, so I knew it at one time. But you're not looking at IDEA every day. You're doing. No. The- I just go in there and work with the families and and get paid. So that's what I care about. I mix up the letters every now and again, but like a lot of the, I think it is Part B. Yeah, I will correct myself later. I know. It might be, but I'm remembering this weird thing where it was like, you would think it would be part B because B comes before C, but actually part C, but I could be wrong. But I remember (laughs) having to remember something weird like that, being like, okay, even though they're younger, it's still part C. So I don't, I don't know. We'll go. Listeners tell us. Yeah. (laughs) You can tell. Yeah. Tara and I will get back to you. I'm going to go look it up right now. I'm sure I could find the answer online, but. (laughs) But like how we could echo that or like as a bookmark. 
after school or like at age 21 or whenever your child exits from special education services to kind of like regroup and shift towards more community focused care. I think that's great. Yeah. But um, kind of shifting back to when you were talking about um, the IFSP meeting and your kind of your role as a team member, you use the word service provider. Is that like the what your official description is? Yeah, okay. so we're all listed as different service providers. Yeah, so you're those are all provi- therapists. Yeah, all, they're all therapists. Okay. Um, yeah, OT, PT, speech are the main ones, and then there's also play therapy and sometimes like a behavioral therapist. Um, will come in as part of the team. Those are the big ones. There's not really, um, there's usually not any like psychologists involved like on a team member. Um, those are, yeah. Yeah. Would the BCBA be Canada's kind of like the behavior? <gasps> They're not, you, yeah, they, they would be. Yeah. yeah. They're not often a part of the team though. Like ABA mm-hmm. just tends to be its own separate thing from, but occasionally you'll get a kid that, that's part of their IFSP. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow wonder how that looks different state to state. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know much about the early intervention program in other states. Um, I do know that some states have a really interesting model um, where they, instead of having lots of different providers come into the family's home, they pick the area where the child needs the most growth, and then all the other um, disciplines consult with that person. So oh. if their main delays are in speech, and you'll only have a speech therapist and then the PT and the OT, I guess, will just tell the speech therapist what else the kid the kid should be working on, um, which is really interesting. And I'm personally, I mean, I've never seen it in action, but I don't know if I'm a fan of that model just because it's, there's a lot that could be lost in communication. Like, even if you tell the speech therapist to work on this and this, the speech therapist might not always know, like, exactly how to do what you're telling them to do, or even to, like determine if the child's making progress because that's not where their training and their background is and you know it's yeah. I know it's hard for families to have all these different professionals and it's overwhelming for them to come into their home but at the same time if you only have one person then maybe your child's making great gains in this area but there are a lot of other areas of development that might not be getting addressed the way they should mm-hmm. um so yeah I don't know which states do it but I, I do know that um there are a few states that do it that way um yeah. And I don't know how often the other team members consult or really what that looks like, but yeah, yeah it's interesting. <laughs> that definitely is. That's a model I have to look into and learn more about, but yeah. wow. Yeah, and I feel like the model you're a part of now is like a common one even across clinics across the states. And yeah. Even like locally here at the TEACH program or the CIDD, that's usually how it goes to. Yeah. Yeah. Usually there's a lot of different team members and even at like outpatient pediatric clinics or there's usually a a variety of disciplines um, that are all kind of working with the same family and collaborating and and things like that. Yeah. Then broadly multidisciplinary work is like not just a buzzword, but it is like a way of work and a way of life. And yeah that way you mentioned too that like a lot of the goals do overlap between therapists and so sometimes they work on the same goal yeah it's like a great way to go deeper into like interdisciplinary work too yeah yeah definitely so speaking of like your training a little we got into that a little bit with your board survey (laughs) what did your training look like uh, you mean you mean just OT or? or oh yeah we can go into or do you want me to go all the way things. back <laughs> <Let's> go back <laughs> we got into some great stuff about families and the work you do day to day but okay let's think back so you want to flashback you want me to flashback to, to first yeah, Camp Royal yeah right. what was your first autism experience then? so oh, my first besides just kind of like babysitting a, a kid that had autism uh, my first real like job experience working with um, folks on the autism spectrum was at Camp Royal and so um, get a lot of training so it's like a week-long training where you they're all different models you learn about autism you learn about um, the teach model and structured teaching and using using visual supports and timers and and structure to kind of help um, to help the campers understand their day and predict what's going to happen next and to help them like really get the most out of that camp experience and then we also had a little um one lecture just about sensory processing and how um, 
folks on the autism spectrum process sensory information differently and you know the things we can do to just respect that and then also kind of help them make sense of their environment um and so that was probably i mean that's honestly the biggest amount of training i've ever gotten is just living and working um with people with autism day after day for uh, (laughs) many months at a time um and being there through you know every daily routine really helped me like i mean eating, playing, sleep, all of that, like, um, you get to kind of, and across the lifespan too. So working, we got to work with really young children, um, and then all the way up to adults. So seeing kind of, you know, how different folks with autism are, are, you know, how, what, how they grow and how they change across, um, across, um, the lifespan too has been really interesting. Um, it was probably, that's definitely the most valuable experience, um, that's it's really shaped like how I work as an OT and just how I interact with families and how I think about autism and, and everything. Um, so that was really wonderful, <laughs> as Tara can attest to, because <laughs> um, you, you just meet so many different people, too, that you wouldn't yeah. have met. Like, yeah, you could work with like one person with autism and you could be doing things with them and like. But that's just one person. And just so, to meet so many different campers, not even the ones that you are, you know, with every day, but seeing all the other ones around you too and seeing everyone interact together as a group was just really valuable. Um, and then, um, so there's I, that. Yeah, that's such a <laughs> I could go on and on about that, but I'll move on. Um, I always tell my teachers and professionals that they should just like go spend a week there Yeah, that is I think the most immersive, hands-on experience. Experience that you'll ever really get, like yeah. short of just like, but even if you just live with one family, that's still one family. It's right. just like right, so many different people there. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everyone should just go spend a week at Camp Royal <laughs> <laughs> as part of your training for so yeah for whatever that. profession. If you're going to work in the field of autism, you should go to Camp Royal. Yeah, because... and you can really understand families' experiences or start to get more of an yeah. understanding of it, of like what they experience day to day and helping their child navigate the day itself. Exactly, yeah. Because yeah. all the campers had different strengths and different challenges and you know, it's definitely not never a one size fits all approach. Like you're no. constantly having to modify like the tools that you use and the strategies you're using and definitely. the way you're interacting with, with people. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Still wish I could go back, but here we are now. Um, so then I worked at teach for a few years and that was also really, really um, um, instrumental and kind of putting me on a career path to becoming an OT. So at Mm -hmm. Teach, I worked in in their early intervention program, but it was a little different. So we did um, preschool playgroup several mornings a week, and then I also did some home sessions. So it kind of, in a way, bridged the gap between like the Camp Royal life and then starting to get uncomfortable working with families in their home um, and working with the the really young kids. And the kids at Teach all had a diagnosis of autism, but often we were getting them right after the diagnosis had happened. So they were like two, three, um, I think two to five was kind of the range, the age range that we served. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd already learned a lot about kind of structure and visual schedules and um, work systems from camp, but I definitely learned even more about how to tailor um, visual schedules to each child's need and how to adapt it for the home environment. Because it's really different um, helping a family get more structured and implement some of those things in their home. Um, Camp Party was nice because it had this built-in structure that everyone uses. There's a daily schedule. Home is not like that for most families. Like most families, yeah, you have certain things that you do every day, but they might happen at a different time every day. And you're also, you know, there's more variability. You're doing different things every day. There's a lot more downtime um, um, at the home. So kind of helping families figure out like, okay, what parts of my day do I need to structure? How can I structure them to help my child? And, um, and you know, how, how it all, how it all works, um, in the home because yeah. it's, um, it's a very different environment. Um, even though camp, they're living there, that's not their, that's not home life. That's not, you know, I, when, when you live with your child at home, you're not going to the pool with them three times a day no. and eating meal at exactly the same time every day. There's, there's usually variability and, um, and every family's different into how structured they are with their lives. So it was um, definitely great. And then I, I really just got used to talking with families that were newly diagnosed and, you know, um, just being there and listening to families that are dealing with all these different emotions um, as they're just going through this kind of um, the new autism diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that I did that for two years. And then I went to OT school and, um, well... 
So at cheese school, I learned a lot of different, not just about autism, but um, definitely kind of worked with all different kinds of populations. So teas work not only with kids that have developmental disabilities, but also with older adults that have various medical conditions, strokes and dementia, and also people that have really been in an accident or had like really physical injuries or physical disabilities. And Mm -hmm. they work in a variety of settings. Um, You know, there's in-home, there's school, there's outpatient clinics, there's hospitals, there's skilled nursing facilities, and there's community settings too. Um, There's rehab for adults. So I kind of had to learn a bit about all of that. which definitely, it kind of, it gave me a different framework to kind of view um, not just the child and, and their needs, but kind of how the whole family and the whole like works as a system and how the family mm-hmm. interacts with the community. And, and then it also, like we had to learn a lot about lifespan. And so yeah. um, not just child development, but how, how does someone develop, you know, into their teen years and once they reach adulthood and what does that look like? Um, so, and I had two specific field works. One of them was uh, at an adult residential facility for adults with um, mental health, comorbid mental health and um, IDDD diagnoses. So that was really interesting and um, a little bit of a different population than I'd even worked with at camp. Um, mm. It was really, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was good times there. It was good times. So that was a um, very unique setting. And then I worked, um, my second internship was at a, part pediatric outpatient, part early intervention, and part um, residential school for children with um, behavioral difficulties so that weren't able to be served in the uh, regular education setting. So I definitely I worked with some teenagers that had autism at that school and then some, a lot of little kids and um, kids at the clinic, like school-aged children that were on the spectrum as well. And learn more about sensory processing disorder and fine motor skill development. And um, it kind of really filled in the gaps of stuff I didn't already know. So I already knew a lot about autism. I didn't really learn anything new in school. In fact, I had to teach the class about teach because I had worked there. We had like one slide and I had to stand up and be like, actually, let me tell you more about this. <laughs> um, but, but I did learn a lot just about human development and different conditions and about how kind of like social systems work and, and all of that. So... Yeah. yeah, wow. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> that was a lot. Whirlwind of experience yeah. that you bring to the plate as you work with families. Those yeah, I, I know a little bit about your your field placements, but that's amazing that you got to work with um kind of folks that are a little bit older than what you you kind of knew from the start that you really wanted to work with little ones yeah. on the spectrum. Yeah. So that's definitely it's like, what are some things that you learned about that that you kind of bring to your work today? Um, it's just when you work with adults, you can kind of see like things that they maybe, you know, and I want to say never learned as a child, but that it, it's almost like when you're an adult, it's like there's all these gaps in their development yeah. that these skills that maybe that they could have learned or, you know, didn't learn when they were younger. And you see that they're still struggling with these things as an adult, um, whether that's like self-care activities or self-regulation is a big one. Um, Mm -hmm. It's kind of, that's an area that I really want to specialize more in because it's um, really self-regulation is kind of the biggest barrier to a lot of um, not just adults with autism, but people being able to live in the community. Like if you, become so out of control with your behavior that you're a danger to yourself and others. And these, those were the folks that I was working with people yeah. that had, were not able to live in a group home setting or community setting because, um, you know, they just did not have good coping skills and they could get aggressive and hurt themselves and hurt other people to the point where, you know, they had to be, I don't say they were, well, I mean, they were isolated. They they live with other people and staff, but they were, um, and they did community outings, but they were really isolated um, from the community. And, and so it's, and I see a lot of that in the little kids that I work with and that, you know, the tantrums and meltdowns can be so severe and it's so hard to deal with. And then you still yeah. see adults that are also still dealing with it. So, you know, mm-hmm. for me as a professional, I still don't know the answer. I really want to help them learn these skills when they're younger so that when they're an adult, you know, they're, they're able to, to be out in the community and, and be with other people and not have to be um, in such a restricted and, and isolated kind of setting. Like we want them to be able to, you know, exist in the community um, and, and be with, like live a, a full, like, you know, life to the, you know, the best of their ability. So, Great. yeah, that's kind of the biggest thing I took away of just seeing like, wow, like 
like you're like these adults that I was working with really like their emotional regulation skills, you know, that like we're almost at the level of like an 18 month or two year old when you see the kids. Cause when, when you're, when you're a child, like those tantrums and meltdowns are normal. And it's yeah. like when we continue to have them as you get older and you don't learn those coping skills, it's, um, can be really, really hard because then they get bigger and it's, it's harder to, um, for families and other people to deal with that. So that's kind of my, it's one of my big areas of interest that I still really want and need to learn more about. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that's a big area of yeah, need. I love that that you're thinking about that right now at this age span that you're working in right now. And I think that's like generally a common thread right now in a lot of the research I've been reading in terms of like thinking about adulthood mm-hmm. and some common concerns from families and professionals. Like they we think about like challenging behavior and problem behavior, but it's really at the core of it, a lot of self-regulation mm-hmm. difficulties and struggles Yeah, that are kind of like a barrier to navigating things that you want to do at the end of the day or yeah. to get to your preferred task. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely, you know, there, there are so many different, um, I guess like frames of reference and models for thinking about, you know, like yeah. problem behavior, negative behavior and, you know, aggression and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, you know, there, there's obviously environmental triggers and things you can do in the environment to modify and, and change a person's behavior. But yeah. so much, a lot of it is also internal. And, and a lot of these skills, you know, like we don't, I've just been reading a lot of work by different people that you don't, like you don't come out of the womb knowing how to self-regulate. You're right. taught that. And folks on the spectrum, you have to teach. And I mean, even typically developing kids um, that have problems with self-regulation are the ones that tend to do the most poorly in school. You yeah. know, like I've worked also, this is a, a side note, but I've worked a lot with kids that don't have a diagnosis of autism. They're not on the spectrum, but for various reasons, they really struggle with self-regulation. And those are the kids that, um, you know, they might be really smart and really bright and, you know, really social, but then they... Those are the kids that are getting kicked out of daycares and preschools already at this young age, and they get negative labels placed on them, mm-hmm. and it shapes the way people interact with them. And so I, that's kind of that's what I really want to, kind of learn more and work with is how do you teach self regulation skills in young children or to to older to older folks you know yeah. that haven't yet mastered it? How can you teach that in a way just the same way that you would teach math or reading? How do you teach that to people? Um, that aren't naturally developing it and that maybe need a little more support. Just like some people right. aren't great at math and you need more support. Some people aren't great at self-regulation, but that's something that, that can be taught. And you know, research is showing it can be taught and there's different ways to teach it. And we just have to get to these you know, kids or teenagers or adults and, and really work on those skills um, mm-hmm. versus all the other things, which, you know, the, you know, someone can help you get dressed. Someone can help you, you know, navigate whatever transportation, but it's, um, it's really hard um, for someone to teach you self-regulation in the moment when you're flying off the handle and having a huge meltdown. Like, right. that's not the moment to teach it. You have to teach it before, which yes. is the tricky part. That's <laughs> but, the tricky thing. The proactive yeah. environmental strategies, yeah. Yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. So, And there's a lot, you know, There's and there's all kinds of, you know, behavioral therapists and other psychologists and psychiatrists and other people that work um, on, on teams. But, yeah, it's definitely... It's a huge thing. So. It is, yeah, and I think we don't know how to respond to it at times, so we tend to get reactive, and that just kind of continues to build the cycle. It's yeah. kind yeah. of the lingering question a lot of times. So what are some things that you're kind of doing now to focus on self-regulation in the work you do? So it depends on the age of the kiddo, but um, I do a lot of coaching with parents on how to respond when their child's having a meltdown. So a lot of parents, you know, your natural instinct is to talk to the kid or try to discipline the kid in the moment. And so what I work a lot on with parents is when they're in that meltdown moment, that their their body's in the like um, flight or fight stage. Their adrenaline is high. They, they're not able to process information you're giving them. So it's so a lot of the strategies that we learned at camp, reducing your verbal language. If you're able to, getting them to a safe environment where they can't hurt themselves and really kind of um, reducing the sensory input in any way that you can. So for some kids, it's like maybe they can tolerate bright lights um, when they're happy and having a good time. But when they're upset, some kids really need the lights turned down. They don't 
like any auditory information just sets them off again. So really coaching parents on kind of developing like a safe, like it's it's a new trend in parenting, not just autism, but in parenting in general. Yeah. When I look on the blogs, keep a calm down space. So yes. not, a, not a timeout space, but giving your child and creating a routine, you know, and at first I tell parents, it's not like you're going to make this calm down space. Your kid's not, your two-year-old's not going to walk there and use it by themselves. Occasionally you'll get a kid that does that, but very rarely. (laughs) You're going to have to sometimes maybe even physically take them or guide them to that area and over and over again until they learn that this is what they need to do. And kind of just making sure that kids know that they're safe and that they're still loved. And, you know, when, when parents get angry and start yelling and it's it sets the kids off even more. And so, and even if they're having, you know, a lot of parents are just like, but he's screaming and throwing a tantrum in the middle of the store. And what I've had to say is, you know, you, maybe you need to ask for someone to help escort you to a safe place, but you don't need to, that's not the moment to discipline the child or to spank them or to yell at them. Like you, in that moment, you really need to get the child to a safe place to help them calm down. And and sometimes those kids, they don't want to be touched. Yeah. They don't want anyone to talk to them. And so all these attempts that you're making, you just some, and so, so self-regulation is also like when, when, when you're little, when you're an infant, your, your regulation is through touch and through physical contact with your parents. But as when you're, you know, as you get older, older child and towards adulthood, people need to learn a means of self-coping on their own. So kind of by giving that child that space, you're giving them that time to process. And sometimes it might take them a long time to calm down, but the more you do it, usually the better they get at it. And you can, when when they're in a more receptive state, you can offer things that are calming to them, whether that's music that they like or a preferred toy. You know, let's talk a lot about oral regulation. Some kids mm-hmm. really, they need to drink water or a chewy and, and your regulation skills change as you get to be an adult, but... Yeah really just kind of giving them the skills. And then um, the second piece of that is then, okay, they were calm. So let's figure out, like you said, proactively what we could do next time. Why did they get upset? And sometimes it's not always apparent. And sometimes we guess and we guess wrong. Um, You might guess that, oh, maybe this is what set them off. And then you try changing that and no, they still have a tantrum the next time this happens. Mm -hmm. So then you try something else, but it's kind of looking at... um, not blaming the parents, but saying, was there something maybe you did or something that happened in the environment that is triggering this child? And how can we change it um, so that in the future, you know, we're, we're not inadvertently um, causing these meltdowns. And there's a line between like, you don't want to shelter the, the kiddo and, and baby them and not do anything with them. Yeah. But you gotta, you gotta kind of walk the line of of what's too much and parents ask me that all the time and you know I'm still learning too and so my best answer right now is you really just have to to gauge your child and and start to maybe look for some of those Um, once you know the kid well and you start to really identify their warning signs and you can work on it you know if you know that transitions are hard well maybe you don't start by taking them to the the mall the playground and the park and having them do three big transitions in a day maybe you just work on going outside and and coming back inside without having a meltdown and, and progressing from there but yeah um yeah those are huge yeah I like that you mentioned I was just going to bring up kind of like looking up looking at your child's warning signs or getting different triggers and helping them label and identify like yeah. what to do to kind of de-escalate before things happen yeah. is also a huge proactive huge strategy but something yeah. you can do in the moment if you've accidentally and inadvertently sometimes you don't know that some things are triggering yeah so yeah exactly that's the hard part is sometimes you don't know or you accidentally did something and you're like oh i didn't realize you didn't like that okay i'm sorry we'll we'll stop this now or we'll move to a different spot yeah Um, kind of just recognizing like the things that you're introducing in that moment and um yeah i understand that parents can actually can absolutely feel so like hurt and do take it personally when their child has yeah. a huge meltdown, especially if it's in the middle of a store. Yeah, and, and people are staring at yeah. them, and it's really uncomfortable. Um, and they already feel so, isolated as an autism parent. Yeah. Um, yeah. But ultimately, this does support, like, thinking about these strategies um, supports parents' relationship with their children. Yeah. And their rapport in the future, too. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like thinking about the long term yeah yeah thinking about the long term and you know for for parents like it you know I always say like because the parents will tell me like well for my older son I didn't have to do that or I did it this way but it's you know um you might have to adapt like a parent's it's 
adapt their parenting strategies for different kids because the, your kids are different and whether yeah. it's two kids both have autism or one does and one doesn't, what works for one person is not always going to work for the other person. So it's, um, so it's important to think about, um, you know, you can't necessarily change your child's behavior in the moment, but you can always change how you respond to it is a lot of what I tell parents. Yeah. And yes, we, I mean, in the end, that individual is in control of their own actions. And so you have to try the best you can to change your response and to change the environment and to give them the tools so that they can, you know, have more agency and, and yes. feel more in control over their own lives, um, which is also where a lot of um, sometimes the um, tantrums yeah. and the meltdowns and the acting out comes from is when the child or person just doesn't feel like they have control and they're not Definitely. given that control in an inappropriate way. Um, so. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack in that whole field. Yeah, definitely some things to get into and continue to be thinking about in the future and just like lots of different conversations with families. Mm-hmm. I even just think about my own family and having two autistic brothers. Like, yeah, we have to be very different with each of them. Yeah, they're, they're very, very different. different. They're very different guys. Yeah, yeah. we yes. learned that very early on with both of them. But yeah, yeah. So true. So as we kind of like wrap things up, um, what are some of your like your resources that you typically refer to um, in or tools that you use with families? So um, usually, especially if a family's just gotten um, a new diagnosis, I'll suggest if they haven't already make contact with the Autism Society of North Carolina, you know, which does Camp Royal, but they also offer you know, parent groups and all kinds of other services mm-hmm. and then also teach um because there's a teach center in Chapel Hill, and, and um, some kids get diagnosed through there, but if you, they don't, it's still, you know, I'll tell families to go ahead and get on the waiting list, because if they have an autism diagnosis, then they can, um, you know, get seen for individual sessions there, and that's been helpful to a lot of families. Um, as far as just other resources that I use in kind of my day-to-day practice, like I'll, yeah. I'll always suggest that families look into um, the Stanley Greenspan floor time model, um, if, and it just kind of shifts um the way of like interacting with your child and um a lot of these kids you know parents might try to interact and try to play with them and they're not maybe responding or showing engagement you know Mm -hmm. that a typical child would so um, the greenspan model is really great because it's all about following the child's leads and the child's interest and using that to help parents build a rapport with their child and i think sometimes that also helps the self-regulation piece because if you can you know, establish a really strong connection between the parent or the caregivers or family members and the child and, and kind of, you know, it's like you're bringing them into quote unquote your world, but you're also joining their world and, and joining their interests and showing that you're respecting them as an individual. So I really, I really like that model. I really like kind of the philosophy behind it. And then also it just gives parents a lot of really great strategies for interacting that you don't necessarily um, think of in your day-to-day life and not just with play, but you can use it across all your daily routines um, to kind of build that um, relationship. Um, And then this is just a great, just because we were talking about self-regulation, I'm not going to remember the author's name, but if you look up The Explosive Child, it's a really, really great resource um, that really changed my way of thinking about self-regulation and about kids with quote-unquote behavior problems um and it's really great because it um it breaks down this is i think he's a psychologist that's worked with kids with um intermittent explosive disorder autism other like odd all kinds of other you know behavioral what quote-unquote behavioral challenges um and i think he's really trying to shift the way we think about behavior um and that um you know, behavior is always communication and that behavior has a purpose, even if, you know, we might not understand it and to really kind of, um, change the way you might be interacting with a, a kid. Um, yeah. if, if you just look at the explosive child, it should be the first book that comes up. It's got like purple letters across the front. I just don't remember the name of the author, That's but right. it, it I'll get, link it yeah, okay. Yeah. Notes, link but, it. Cause it yeah. goes over like, you know, like a teenager, like a verbal teenager, like a middle-aged child, and then like even how to adapt it for like a a nonverbal kiddo or nonverbal adult, like you could apply the same principles. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was really, really helpful. So So cool. Yeah. So great resources. And then we did kind of touch on this earlier, but are there some other things where we can dig in a little bit deeper for this last question? of ways that you incorporate aspects about growing up with the families you work with and the kiddos you work with? Um, I mean, I think I'm, 
I'll always kind of, I'm open to having conversations with families and sometimes I'll start it like about, you know, um, mainly, usually I just go to like, oh, you know, the next transition, which is usually school, but yeah. parents will ask me a lot of times, you know, what do you think they're going to be like as an adult? You think they're still going to do this when they're an adult? And those are always really hard questions hard to answer. Yeah. And so I usually, I'm usually just honest with families. I'll, I say, you know, I really don't know. All I know is that you're doing the right thing now. You're working with your child. You're getting them the supports that they need. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll encourage them, too, to really, you know, start thinking about the future and how um, all the things we're working on now are things that are going to help them um, in the future. And um, for those families that do have a kid that's diagnosed is on the spectrum, um, definitely encouraging them to reach out to families that have adult children who have really just been through it and yeah. can be a good resource to them. Like I know a couple of families with older kids and older teenagers, so sometimes I'll put them in contact with them or just encourage them to reach out to, to different parent groups and yeah. the Autism Society um, or um, to read different books about um, people's experiences, um, just, you know, autistic adults, uh, you know, that are speak for themselves that are, you know, about their experience and then also the parent experience because there's definitely value in hearing from both. And I think it um, can, it goes a long way to helping families maybe think about the future and anticipate, you know, these are some things that might or might not happen in my kid's future. But yeah, it's hard for a lot of families to think towards the future. A lot of them are very much like in the day to day, which makes sense. They're just mm-hmm. in the daily crying, trying to get through like Thinking about the future is sometimes really hard for a lot of families, and some families aren't really there yet. They're just yeah. really focused on what their child's doing now and, and the, the very next steps. And, um, yeah, it just depends on the family. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> some families are way more open and want to talk to me about all that stuff, and yeah. some families are very much like, I just need some help right now with this issue, and, and we'll get to the future later. So, yeah, we're yeah. going to make it through today, and then yeah. maybe we'll think about that. And then maybe we can think about that. First this. First, this. I need my child to sleep more than two hours at a time. So That's a huge thing. Yeah. Because <laughs> no one's going to grow up if yeah. everyone's getting two hours of sleep I know. a day. Yeah, yeah. so it's, a, it's definitely a big journey, and every family handles it differently, too, is also what I've learned, so. Just meeting families where they are and supporting them, whether it's, you know, they're in the grief process or joy or mm-hmm. in between. And yeah. That's amazing. You do such great work. Thanks, uh, Tara. Thanks you me. do too. This podcast. And <laughs> there's a lot of support when they're younger, but there's, it definitely falls off when they get to be adults. And so right. I, um, yeah. you know, so it's a big area of need. Yeah. Huge. But thanks for getting everyone. Uh, uh, like I'd like to think of it like I see them along the line as they on the right older. path. I <laughs> yeah, hope. I hope they're on the right path to yes. a bright future. That's so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for being on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. This was fun and not as scary as I thought it would be. Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Woo! Hey, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I've got a few things to go over as you are on your way out the door. So firstly, if you like this episode, please go ahead and share it with a friend or another family you know if you think this will be helpful for them. And then also, I'd love to hear your side of the conversation for this episode. So why don't you join us in the Autism Grown Up community and share what's going on for you, your family, and in your local community and whatever role you serve everyone is welcome over here. You can access the community through this link, which is community.autismgrownup.com. And then lastly, if you really love this episode and just the podcast in general, please go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever podcast app you are currently listening to this episode on. It just helps get the word out there when it comes to what's out there for autism growing up. All right, we'll see you in the community and I'll catch you next time.